Hey guys, before we jump into the show today, I actually want to share a bit of personal news. I am very excited to announce the launch of my new fund, Miniola Search Partners. The fund will be exclusively focused on investing in search funds, the entrepreneurs who run them, and the businesses that they acquire. I will be investing across the entire search fund spectrum, including funded search, self-funded search, and equity gap situations across North America. Now, I started this fund for a few reasons. At a macro level, to say that small businesses are important would be a dramatic understatement, given that over 90% of all companies within North America have fewer than 100 employees. Small businesses are indeed the engine of the North American economy, and by extension, they have a very real impact on each of our lives every single day. At a micro level, as a former searcher and CEO myself, I know what the journey is actually like. On this very podcast, you've heard me say probably many times and quite unapologetically that nobody knows what it's like to be a CEO or an entrepreneur unless you've been one. In that same spirit, in my opinion, nobody knows what it's like to be a searcher unless you've been one. As somebody who has been both, I know how hard and often lonely the entire journey can be. Now, when I raised my own search fund in 2012, I was incredibly blessed to have an awesome group of investors and an even more incredible board of directors once I began running the company, and I saw the impact that they had on me. There was one investor in particular, however, who said something to me that I will never forget. He said, I want to be the investor that you call with the questions that you're too afraid to ask anybody else. As I look back on the past 10 years, it's clear to me what an enormous impact that investor had on both my professional and, just as importantly, my personal life. Now that I am an investor myself, I want to be that type of investor for somebody else. Now, if you're raising a search fund, launching a self-funded search, or if you have an equity gap that needs to be filled, I would, of course, love to hear from you. You can feel free to email me at any time at steve at mineolasearchpartners.com. Mineola is spelt M-I-N-E-O-L-A. Okay, thanks guys. Now on to today's show. Within your first degree network alone, I suspect you know a large number of people who, at one time or another, have expressed a desire to pursue an entrepreneurial career path. Yet, I also suspect that, of those people, only a small percentage of them have actually elected to take the entrepreneurial plunge, leaving those who haven't done so in a perpetual state of wondering what could have been. This audio blog is aimed towards those listeners who may be wrestling with this question themselves. At the risk of disappointing you within the first 10 seconds, however, you probably already know that I can't answer this question for you directly, and nor can anybody else. Like most questions of this sort, the answer is almost always, it depends. For those considering whether or not to take their career in an entrepreneurial direction, the best that I, or anybody else for that matter, can do for you is to walk you through how I made the decision myself at the time that I had to make it. I'll also attempt to complement those considerations with some of the lessons and reflections that I've garnered in the 10 years since then, which of course benefit from the clarity that only seems to come with hindsight. Though everything I'm about to mention is unlikely to resonate with you in your own personal circumstances, I hope at least some of it does. First, let's clarify some fundamental misconceptions about entrepreneurship, and we'll start with the definition of an entrepreneur. 
Now, at the risk of overgeneralizing, I would contend that the public's definition of entrepreneurship is far too narrow and indeed misguided. Too often, it includes only founders operating high-growth venture-backed startups, often operating within the broader technology ecosystem, and often with world-changing ambitions. Though people who fit this definition are indeed entrepreneurs, they represent only a small subset of the total entrepreneurial ecosystem. The best definition of entrepreneurship that I've encountered, as defined by Harvard Business School, is as follows. The relentless pursuit of opportunity without regard to resources currently controlled. Now you'll notice that nowhere within this definition is there mention of funding sources, growth ambitions, industry, company size, or even one's status as a founder. Based on this definition then, the chef who opens her own restaurant, the author writing her first novel against all odds, and the person operating a consulting business as a sole practitioner are every bit the entrepreneur that those running venture-backed startups in Silicon Valley are. The second misconception is with regards to the DNA or the constitution of an entrepreneur. Now, too often, entrepreneurs are mistakenly thought of as extremely risk-tolerant, even risk-seeking, cowboys and cowgirls who somehow manage to throw caution to the wind in a way that most of us simply can't. Again, though this may describe a small subset of entrepreneurs, this overgeneralization simply is not true in the vast majority of cases. As my mentor once told me, entrepreneurs aren't risk-takers, they're risk-mitigators. This is so because not all risks are created equally. Indeed, in most cases, people decide to pursue an entrepreneurial endeavor because they see an opportunity for outsized reward relative to the risk that they're taking in pursuit of that reward. In my own case, I decided to pursue an entrepreneurial career through purchasing, and then operating, an existing company from its founder who had been successfully running the business over the course of the preceding 20 years. In contrast to pursuing entrepreneurship as the founder of a new business, pursuing entrepreneurship through acquisition provided me with the opportunity to lead a company that had 20 years of operating history, had already achieved product market fit, was consistently profitable, and had a stable base of recurring revenue being generated through hundreds of loyal customers. Because I also chose to raise external capital to help me consummate the acquisition, I saw an opportunity to satisfy my entrepreneurial ambitions and to pursue life-changing financial upside without taking a commensurately large amount of risk. After all, I didn't have to put down a dime of my own money, which was very helpful given that I didn't have any money to speak of at the time. And even if I wasn't able to create meaningful value within the company, at the very least, I'd still be earning a market CEO salary for as long as I was leading the company. In my view, therefore, the entrepreneurial risk that I was taking was highly mitigated. Now, I can't say this for certain, but I do suspect that some people never pursue an entrepreneurial career path simply because they don't think of themselves as being highly risk tolerant, nor do they see themselves in the same light as the caricature of the entrepreneur that I just described. This is an unfortunate outcome and one that need not exist if only our collective views about entrepreneurship were shaped more by reality and less by stereotypes. Let's talk about something that I call insurance policies. Though risk can indeed be mitigated, it can almost never be eliminated entirely. Like many risks, however, insurance policies exist to make entrepreneurial risk more palatable, but for whatever reason, most people don't seem to recognize that they're already policyholders. In my own case, when I decided to become an entrepreneur in 2012, I had just finished spending two years and a few hundred thousand dollars getting my MBA from one of the world's best business schools. Instead of viewing my degree as a lottery ticket or an opportunity to make as much money as possible after graduation, I instead viewed it as the world's best insurance policy against taking entrepreneurial risk. 
After all, if that degree didn't get me a great job after a few years of trying to hack it unsuccessfully as an entrepreneur, what would? So what insurance policy are you sitting on, likely unknowingly? It could be your academic degrees, your professional experience, your intelligence, your propensity to work hard, or your existing relationships within a given company or industry. Regardless of the form of insurance that you're holding, you're almost certainly already in possession of an asset, or more likely several assets, that can act as a built-in contingency plan should your entrepreneurial endeavor not work out. Interestingly enough, time itself can also act as an insurance policy. Though time is indeed our most precious asset, and as a result, we're all understandably loath to waste any of it, looked at through a long-term lens, it can also act as an insurance policy of sorts. So consider the average person who's likely to work for, say, 40 years between the approximate ages of 20 to 60 years old. If that person were to take, say, two years to throw caution to the wind and pursue her entrepreneurial dreams, those two years would represent only 5% of her total working life. Now, assuming that she has the opportunity to increase her freedom, independence, autonomy, satisfaction, and fulfillment by more than 5% as an entrepreneur, more likely it's probably closer to something like 500%, then through the lens of time alone, pursuing your entrepreneurial dreams presents potential upside that is asymmetrically larger than the risk that it requires you to take. Let's talk about something that I call the regret minimization framework. Though there are no shortage of frameworks that one can use when contemplating whether or not to become an entrepreneur, I found the framework of regret minimization to be a particularly instructive one. In essence, at the risk of sounding overly profound, this framework asks, what are you more likely to regret on your deathbed? Trying and failing or not having tried at all? Or, as world-renowned CEO coach Marshall Goldsmith puts it, much more succinctly and much less morbidly, I should add, would you rather say, oh well, or what if? Intellectually, I suspect many of us would agree that trying and failing would be the preferable outcome of the two, yet even with that understanding in mind, most people still simply will never try. Now, I'll leave it to the psychologist and sociologist to explain the myriad reasons why this may be so, but it's at least possible that one such reason is that we're all too busy trying to lead the lives that we think we ought to be leading, or more likely, and more unfortunately, the lives that others think we ought to be leading, usually based on some aspect of our personalities or backgrounds, like education. For example, an MBA from one of the world's best business schools may compel the graduate to think, consciously or otherwise, that she ought to pursue the highest paying job available, regardless of where her most genuine interests may reside. It may force her to think that she ought to pursue the more well-beaten path, otherwise why'd she bother attending the school in the first place? In this way, sometimes our biggest blessings, like a great degree from a great school, can simultaneously become our biggest curses it may actually make us less likely to pursue our genuine interests in favor of pursuing what we think we should be doing. Now, if this describes you, then at the risk of continuing along my somewhat morbid line of thinking, it's instructive to learn from the dying, believe it or not, as the near-term prospect of death seems to provide a clarity that no other circumstances can. In her book, The Top Five Regrets of Dying, author and palliative care nurse Bronnie Ware said that the most common regret articulated by her patients in the final weeks of their lives was as follows. Quote, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. End quote. She went on to say, quote, This was the most common regret of all. When people realize that their life is almost over and look back clearly on it, it's easy to see how many dreams have gone unfulfilled. Most people had not honored even half of their dreams and had to die knowing that it was due to choices they had made or not made. 
health brings a freedom very few realize until they no longer have it, end quote. The best time to take risk is today, and the second best time is tomorrow. Now, another way to frame this decision is to recognize and acknowledge that, generally speaking, the reasons to not pursue entrepreneurship almost always increase with the passage of time. When I decided to become an entrepreneur in 2012, I had no spouse, no children, no house, no car, and no mortgage. In fact, the only thing that I was the proud owner of was a big piece of student debt. In other words, I quite literally had nothing to lose, which made the decision to become an entrepreneur a rather easy one for me. Fast forward only 10 short years later, however, and I now have all of those things, minus the debt, thankfully. And as a result, I objectively have a lot more to lose now than I did then. The idea that more has one to lose later in their career than at the beginning of it is another reason why many people, particularly those in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, never pursue an entrepreneurial career path. Though I will certainly concede that practical realities like the ones I just mentioned definitely make the decision harder for mid-career pro professionals, it's also worth noting that you'll inevitably have more to lose with every day that passes, and therefore, by definition, the best time to take entrepreneurial risk is today. Because we can't change the past, by definition, you will never have less to lose than you do today. Now, almost everybody who I know that has put off the entrepreneurial decision, usually saying something to the effect of, I'll do it after my next promotion, or I'll do it once the kids are a bit older, still have not taken the plunge. The reason why is because the golden handcuffs have only gotten tighter over time, which is to say the things which they stand to lose, including opportunity costs, have only increased with time. Now, if you're a listener who's relatively early in your career, then you have the unique opportunity to leverage this lesson without going through the pain and regret that often leads to its realization. In my opinion, the earlier you are in your career, the easier it is to take entrepreneurial risk. You have less to lose, have plenty of time to take a more conventional path should it not work out, and are more likely to have the energy and tenacity that those later in their careers often yearn for. Let's talk about some observations gleaned over the past 10 years. Now, over the 10 years since I graduated from Harvard Business School, I've seen my friends and classmates pursue an endless variety of career paths, though chief among them are roles that I would, for lack of a better phrase, classify as traditional jobs, impressive though they may be. These include things like private equity, investment banking, management consulting, hedge funds, and the like. Though most aspiring capitalists would happily give a limb in return for the opportunity to land such coveted and high-paying jobs, two observations strike me as particularly relevant to the conversation that we've been having thus far. First, within any given class at Harvard, mine included, the job turnover rate within the first two years after graduation is roughly 50%, five-zero. That means that half of the time, the profession that seemed so exciting to students just two short years ago quickly proved itself to be an unfulfilling one. Second, and this is much more anecdotal, of the countless friends and classmates who took much more traditional career paths than I did after graduation, over the past 10 years, I cannot begin to tell you how many of them have told me something to the effect of, I wish I had tried something similar to what you tried immediately after we graduated. Well, guess how many times I've replied by saying that I wish I had become a management consultant, investment banker, or hedge fund manager after graduation. Precisely zero times. Now, I don't mention this to suggest that my decision was the right one, nor to speak disparagingly about these fantastic traditional career paths, nor to congratulate myself for taking the entrepreneurial risk when I did. I'm simply offering it up as an empirical observation that may be relevant to those currently wrestling with the decision, particularly in the context of the regret minimization framework that we just discussed. Everything has a price. 
So it's likely apparent to you by now that, all else being equal, I tend to encourage people to pursue their entrepreneurial dreams so long as they've been sufficiently thoughtful and introspective about the decision. With that said, however, our decision would be incomplete without also discussing the price of entrepreneurship. Indeed, nothing in life is free, and the decision to take the entrepreneurial plunge is no exception. The reality of being an entrepreneur tends to stand in stark contrast to the expectations of most. Though entrepreneurship may indeed present you with the opportunity to realize freedom, independence, autonomy, and several other benefits, it's critical for you to understand that these things have a commensurate price, and one must be very thoughtful about their willingness and ability to pay it. This price usually includes some combination of the following. Stress, fear, anxiety, uncertainty, and loneliness. Years or decades of significant wealth concentration and illiquidity. Regular feelings of imposter syndrome. Significant burden of responsibility, as every family represented by each of your employees is depending on the quality of the decisions that you make. The feeling of never being able to leave work at the office. The realization that every problem in the business ultimately tends to be your fault, either directly or indirectly. Fewer emotional outlets and the large majority of your friends and family being unable to relate to the problems and opportunities that you face on a near daily basis, and so on. Karen Isabel Noop, who is an executive director in the Global Research Group at Harvard Business School, suggests that aspiring entrepreneurs ask themselves six key questions before deciding to strike out on their own, all of which can be found in her recent article on the Great Resignation. The link to that article can be found in the blog post. In the article, she raises the possibility that the Great Resignation could actually eventually become the Great Boomerang, in part because those who left traditional jobs in 2020 and 2021 did so with an incomplete understanding of the realities of entrepreneurial life. She mentioned that, based on a March 2022 survey, nearly three-quarters of workers regretted quitting, and some 40% of those might be on the move again, in part because, quote, Many are searching for career opportunities that afford them new experiences or the flexibility to search for what's missing instead of engaging in the sometimes difficult introspection that may be necessary to find it, end quote. Let's talk about the opposite side of the entrepreneurial risk equation. So if everything indeed has a price, and it does, then we must also recognize that there's also a price to not becoming an entrepreneur, likely in favor of one taking a more traditional job. Now, this is an important thing to recognize because in contemplating whether or not to become an entrepreneur, many people, understandably, tend to focus on the risks of doing so, yet they completely ignore the risks of not doing so. So in return for the benefits of taking a more conventional job, things like compensation, benefits, having good brands on your resume, and so on, recognize that you're also choosing to pay a price whether you realize it or not. The price could include any of the following things. Lack of personal control over your career and the people with whom you work years or decades of regret and wondering what could have been. Little or no opportunity to realize asymmetric financial upside as most financial rewards tend to come in the form of salary. Being at the mercy of major strategic, financial, or operational decisions made by other people. Inflexible work schedules. And the fact that the time, effort, commitment, and emotional energy that you're ultimately exerting is on behalf of somebody else, typically the owner or owners of the business in which one works and so on. So in sum, the decision of whether or not to become an entrepreneur is, of course, a deeply personal one, and as a result, no objectively correct answer exists to address it. What I've tried to communicate over the past couple minutes, however, is that the answer itself will only be as good as the introspection, thought processes, and clarity of insights that led to it in the first place. 
Entrepreneurship is generally much less risky than most might think, though it is also much less glamorous than most might think. Though many people understandably focus on the risk of walking the entrepreneurial path, it's equally important to acknowledge the risks of not doing so. Like substantially every decision you'll make in your life, the decision that you'll make here will involve making trade-offs. If you get nothing else from this audio blog, I hope that you'll at least explicitly surface and consider what trade-offs you're willing to make and what trade-offs you're unwilling to make, and also to ensure that your considerations are colored more by reality and less by misconception and stereotype.